This is Diver, podcast about diversity, equity, and inclusion in special education research. I'm your host, Federico Weitler, associate professor at the University of Illinois at Chicago and board member of the Division of Research of the Council for Exceptional Children. Welcome, welcome, welcome to our third episode of Dive In, a podcast about equity, diversity, and inclusion in special education research. Today, we had a great episode with not one, but two guests that are going to delight us and help us to understand an important aspect of research that we tend to sometimes forget or ignore in special education research. So today, we're going to be talking about researchers' positionality. And to do so, we invited two researchers who had a recent piece about positionality in Educational Researcher, one of the flagship journals, journals of the American Educational Research Association. So let them introduce themselves and let's hear the interview. Um, hi, everyone. I'm Subini Anima. I'm an um, associate professor at Stanford University. Hi, everyone. I'm Mildred Boveda, and I am in Dominican Republic right now with a little bit of static in my internet. So hopefully I'll be able to do this podcast well, but I'm an associate professor at Penn State University. Well, I have these beautiful, bright, amazing scholars with me today. I'm very excited that actually I was able to put them both in the same, I would say same room, now same virtual room. Uh, I have them both face to face faces right next to each other on my screen. So this is this is very exciting. And I invite you both too. I mean, you, you could speak about a wide range of topics. Uh, we could be speaking here forever. But I invited you because you recently had a very, uh, I think, interesting paper in Educational Researcher uh, about positionality. And I thought, well, that seems like a great topic to address in a podcast that tries to uh, um, expand and contribute to the ways that special education research uh, uh, engage with equity and, and justice-oriented efforts. Um, so um, we're going to be focusing on positionality. And so the first question that I have is pretty simple, pretty straightforward for people maybe that are thinking, what are they talking about? Um, what is positionality? So positionality, the way it typically has been, has been manifested through like a positionality statement. And our article kind of pushes back against this idea of positionality being a static statement of reflexivity. Um, you know, really, we go beyond just thinking about listing a canned list of like identities or um ontological or methodological preferences and really think about how you position yourself, how you situate yourself in relationship to specifically in our article, multiply marginalized communities. Because you can, you as researchers, we're positioned when we're creating knowledge and, and generating knowledge about communities. It could be um, people who are more powerful than us, like there's been examples of people who have written about positionality in relationship to, for example, deans and presidents of universities. But our article was really emphasizing, and I think it's very relevant for special education, marginalized and multiple, multiply marginalized communities and community members, how you position yourself in the inquiry process, not just when you're writing a statement, 
But when you're first thinking about um, engaging knowledge about a group of people that is multiply marginalized, and I know Subini has a lot to say about positioning for spe uh, specifically. Yeah, thanks, Mildred. I think all I would add is like what what I think about positioning. Where, where Mildred and I got really talking, and I just want to say like what an honor and a pleasure to work with such a brilliant uh, colleague. Um, uh, but was was to really we, really the, having this conversation about how we train grad students around this idea because positionality in like is always you know I think it was created the statements were created to recognize that um, that um, researchers hold different identities and have different relationships with research. Uh, but what we started to see, as Mildred said, was this canned list of identities um, that really sounded very static. And it sounded like it just became a checkbox thing instead of actually engaging with issues, uh, critical issues of power and how power is reproduced through knowledge generation. So, you know, really understanding positioning as a verb where re researchers reflect on their shifting locations in relationship to interlocking systems of oppression, our fields of study. And our and the people we um, work with in our research, um, and understanding that this is not static, and that 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 so to me, really understanding positioning as a verb, and something that changes over time, and that changes with different studies, and changes um, with who who our audiences and who we're engaging, and understanding positionality statement as a as a um, uh, a statement about the inquiry process, not just us as a list of of. Of, of identities uh, was really mm. an important distinction that, in my humble opinion, was one of the most important interventions th that we tried to make in this conversation. Well, that, that's fabulous. I'm learning a lot about this. And, you know, I need to do me a culpa. I have done that. Most of the articles that I see around that are about, okay, I'm a white uh, male, blah, 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 cisgender, you know, start adding, you know, uh, different stuff. And I, I, just I have done that in the in the past. Probably we'll have to change it after this article. Learning from you about how to think uh, about positioning in different ways. Um, but I mean, one thing that I want to highlight from what you're saying is like you're not thinking about positionality. Something you do after you do the research and you write it up, which is what you're trying to say. But actually think about and reflect about positional positioning uh, uh, from the get go, right? So. In relation to that, how how do you think uh, uh, positioning or positionality affects the, the the research design? I think it's it's an ethics issue, but it's also like you are asking with your question. It's a methodological issue. So, in terms of, um, I'm just going to be honest with you. I also am very grateful that I was able to process this quite a bit with Subini. We actually talked together about how we were positioned in the field, like at large, not just special education and education research for probably a year before we even started writing this paper. But the reality is it's really interesting how sometimes when people, first of all, in special education, I'm not seeing positioning nearly enough. I'm not seeing positionality statements. There's a lot of assumptions about what um, people think are people's orientation. Um, when things are unsaid, that means that they are assumed. And so when I started making my positionality explicit, it was really fascinating and sometimes very frustrating and disrespectful to see the way people reacted to me making my positioning explicit in my scholarship, my positionality. 
And um, like you said, you, you know, you're saying mea culpa. You're saying that you've made this far pod just listing identities, Federico. But honestly, who trained us to do positionality statements? Like we've been trained all of We've been trained by some amazing scholars. Shout out to them. And we know that these scholars are reflective of how what they write and how they are in relationship to marginalized um, communities, specifically in special education, um, disabled people, people with disabilities, and at the intersections of race and other, you know, marginalized identities. The people who trained us do do this kind of reflective work, but nobody explicitly taught us how to do it. So when I started to do it, or I'll be in teams, I'll be on, on research teams with other folks, and, you know, they'll do like funny things, like try to... um not explicitly say that it's their marginalized identity, but try to kind of make it like vague. All of these kinds of uncomfortable moments where clearly even those who were trying were actually doing it in a way that was harmful. That is kind of what precipitated this paper. Okay, there are folks who are doing positionality. It's not, ha it's not that that many people doing it in our field. Let's look at the literature, who's doing it, how they're doing it. And then let's give some guidance. And so you may say Maya Cooper, but at least you were trying, Federico. You're one of the people who were trying to at least make it explicit that you were aware of, of, of your identity in relationship to the people that you were talking about. And now the Queen Subini, what do you have to say? <laughs> I mean, I also similarly, I think with Mildred, I want to be fair to uh, you and other folks who've done this, the listing of identities. I've certainly done it because that was kind of what that was the models we were seeing, um, you know, but I also really remember resonating with Wanda Pillow's original piece on this idea of like um, positionality statements as confessionals. Um, and it really, it really always got me wondering, like, who is positionality statement for? What is it? What is the what is the purpose of it? And that's really what we try to ask in this question or in this paper is like, what is the power and the purpose of these? Um, some people, I think, result in listed a list of identities, while others like me um, sometimes refuse to write them because I, I felt like they were so static. But that's not the solution either. So yeah. I'm not you know, I think all of us are recognizing our own like grappling with this in real time while also thinking about our own training and the intellectual lineage that we are part of, which in which how we train our doc students to support this work. Um, and they're asking us like, how do you do this critical work? How do you grapple with these ideas? And then what does that look like when you write about it? And that's the thing is there's two different questions there that we really keep coming back to. Um, so for me, like how it affects research design is really understanding that this is from the jump, right? Like I, I'm, I'm from the, um, you know, the understanding that I subscribe to the understanding that our conceptual framing comes in from all the way from how we write our research question, how we, which methods we choose to engage, which participants we choose to look at. So understanding that our positioning impacts that comes in from the jump, right? From the, or from the beginning, if I want to sound more doctoral, but uh, I don't. So, um, you know, really understanding that that these things, this, this is something we integrate throughout the process, just as we integrate theory throughout the process, our epistemology, our methodology, this is part of um, position, positioning is part of all these things. So really understanding that it affects research design because if my epistemology is I am a positivist who believes there is no that there um there is no um there's only one direct truth, 
then I need to be able to say that up front. And if I don't believe that, that's okay. Uh, You know, so I think part of it is saying all of us, no matter what our methodological commitments are, should be able to say, here is how I engage positioning in my work. Um, And that's that's something, you know, I really encourage the field, those in and out of the field of special education to really be considering is why, why am I so hesitant to write down the assumptions that are alive in my work? Mm. I love that. Yeah. Sorry, Mildred, I interrupt you. No, it's okay. I I just want to say that I love it. I love the way she said it because when you don't make it explicit and in our field, sometimes there's not even a theoretical conceptual framing sections of paper. Sometimes you look at a special ed journal and it's not even there. And, and so what you do is when you don't explicitly say, what is your theoretical entry point into the inquiry or what is your, you know, ontological approach, then the assumption is that everyone shares it. And that is not true anymore. Like the three of us are three people who really, really value and appreciate each other. And yet our entry point into several conversations are going to be different. It can't just be assumed automatically that we're all coming from the same frame. And good scholarship makes it clear to um, to others. And then the other thing I want to say is that this is not new. I, I, sometimes I'm surprised with my colleagues who are like, so, who, who push back against these kinds of explicit communications of of how we're positioned in this work. When all of us are trained to become researchers, we all are getting these like IRB trainings, all of us, everybody. We have to go through IRB approval. You have to get that updated every couple of years. And in all of those trainings, we have to study over, we have to study the um, harmful effects uh, that the research process has, has had in the world, all of us, no matter what your your topic is, no matter what your theoretical orientation. And some of us are very cognizant of that because we come from communities that have been exploited. So it's not just an IRB training when we're talking about Tuskegee or we're talking about the way that in Puerto Rico, for example, women were, were um, there were experiments done on women's reproductions because it's so important so personal. For me, it's not just something that I do on a training. It's something that I'm constantly uh, cognizant of. So when when folks who are, let's say, um, quasi-experimental design or I don't know, what other whatever design, survey design, I design surveys, for example, are like, well, why are you making that clear? My answer is, well, why do you have to take those trainings? You literally cannot do a study without showing that that you have considered these ethical um, issues to some extent. We're just asking you to make it clear in your study that you're making those um, considerations. And it could be done in a variety of ways. Mm, Yeah, no, I I agree. I mean, I agree from the the part that first, we don't put enough effort in special education doctoral programs. I think three of us have gone to sort of special education doctoral programs, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and uh, and I don't think we have that that enough. And I mean, it's very interesting to think about why people w- wouldn't do it, right? Why people think that don't need to do it. And and to me, that has to do a lot with, with power and how we universalize particular views of the world and, and how do we universalize them just make them an invisible right not not explicitly saying just make them as 
uh, uh, an explicit or or uh, a granted truth. You know, that I think those, those quotes are were taken. But you know, I have a, a question. I think some of our audience may have, which is uh, about the, the the importance and the significance of this. Right? If we are implementing, you know, what we call evidence based practice or tested with experimental or quasi experimental designs, why does it matter who the research is? You mentioned a little bit about. Uh, regarding theoretical frameworks, I wonder if you can talk a little bit too about why so significant relations to your participants or to your co-workers or, or to the ecology of people that are, are working with you in a project. You know, I can just uh, start by saying, you know, I think this is a really important question in the sense of like, why, why do we need to be this explicit? Um, or why do we need to include it in our write-up of our work? But I think it really comes down to a, what um, Mildred said, and what we write in the paper is education researchers must continually stay vigilant about the ways certain communities are more susceptible to harm. And to me, that recognizing that that harm has been perpetuated through knowledge generation, often by the academy. So I think in some ways, we are all conditioned to believe that the knowledge generation that the academy produces is so, so important. And I do believe it is. And it has, we have created a lot of harm. So Mildred gave several examples, but I'm going to give another one because, you know, I just got to Stanford about four years ago and I had to really start considering what does it mean to be at a place like Stanford who has a huge role in the eugenics movement? Uh, the, the, the amount of eugenicists at Stanford, uh, you know, back in the day, uh, really it matters. So every time I, as a researcher, engage with oppressed populations, particularly disabled people and disabled people of color, disabled white people and disabled people of color, um, I have to recognize that that history accompanies me, whether or not I am aware of it, whether or not I engage it. So I can ignore it all day long, but that doesn't mean I don't represent it. So I, so if, but if I know about it, then I can consciously address it. And to me, that matters. So the fact that I am at a place that um, has done these things, but also that funds my research. So like, let's talk about how complicated this is. This isn't like a, these people are good who do this and these people are bad who don't. It's yeah. just not that simple, right? Like we all have, we all live in a system. We all live in these places where power is reproduced, where we, um, where the academy has harmed people, where our fields has harmed people. And where they've done beautiful work. So it's not an either or either. So really um, recognizing that. And then I also just want to just add, like, because of the epistemologies we engage, even what we consider evidence is influenced by our positioning and relationship to the things I mentioned before, which is systems of oppression, fields of study, research participants. So if we know that, you know, the, you know, the large, the most often conversation I have when I'm in special ed um, spaces, because I travel in between and across, um, is this conversation around this language of evidence base. What do you consider evidence? Some people don't believe the voices of, of, of actually oppressed people, of disabled people, if we're talking about special education, of disabled kids uh, can be evidence to something. And that uh, strikes me as the first conversation we need to take apart. So, of course, like positionality in these kind of conversations matters. And the final thing I'll say is like it also the most important thing to me is if we understand the harms that have happened um, that our specific fields have done, then we can commit to decentering the, uh, um, the way we say it in the paper is decenter the authoritative figure of the research, 
researcher and prioritize the knowledge of multiply marginalized communities. So to me, those three kind say of- that again. Say that again, Subini. Say that phrase again, because I think that that's a very, we're going to underline that phrase because I think that's very important. What was it? It's that we decenter the authoritative figure of the researcher and we prioritize the knowledge of multiply marginalized communities. And that is the thing I think all three of us um, and Mildred and I in this paper are very committed to is saying that we are not the end-all be-all just because we have this training. Like, just remember that a PhD does not mean we know everything. And sometimes I think some of us forget that, me included, right? What it actually means is that we have a very specific expertise in a very narrow slice of something. And so sometimes what we can do is see the people see these letters behind our name and they give us too much credit and assumed competence. But as women of color, Black women, we are also facing a presumed incompetence that Tracy McMillan Cotton talks about. So for us, I think it's easier to see because we are connected to our communities, how easily uh, knowledge generation can be used to harm people. So I think that to me is the thing we're constantly thinking about is how do we decenter ourselves as the most as the as the smartest person in the room, and I think that's hard for academics because a lot of us been you know that's our identities that we gotta like decouple from. Or maybe you'll make it explicit. Maybe you're gonna maybe you maybe some of the people who are listening to this really think that they do know better than everyone else, that they are the final authority, that they are the ones because they have the ability to conduct a certain type of method, that they are the authority. Say it. I want you to say it. I'm making it clear that I don't think so. But if you think that you are the final authority, don't make the assumption that everybody who's reading your piece is also thinking that. When I'm reading papers, when I'm reviewing papers, by the way, I review a lot of papers because Federico is a good man and he is one of the associate editors for Review of Educational Research. And I see people just make all kinds of statements about groups of people and they don't make explicit what makes them an authority besides the bio that comes or the or the institution that is affiliated uh, with the name i am going to ask you as a reviewer and as an editor okay what gives you the authority or how did you get access to this information and in terms of the design question you asked i think that this work that we asked folks to do, it actually makes you a stronger researcher. Because if I, there was an incident, I can relate to what, to what Subini said. I, I went to Harvard and I did this study one time when I was a student at Harvard and I could have sworn that the teachers were going to see me as another teacher of color. It was, it was an office of English language learners. And I could have sworn that they were going to see me as one of them. I was once an English learner and I thought that they were going to just open up to me and they're going to just relate to me so much because I was one of them. And what they saw me as was Harvard. They saw me as Harvard and they talked to me as Harvard because I didn't do the positioning work that I needed to do. I didn't consider what my affiliation with certain institutions that had a history of causing certain kinds of dynamics in Boston public schools, how that may affect the inquiry process. Now, because of them, I, 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 I consider these things, not just when I am 
writing things up, but as I'm putting together designs and I consider how my positioning, whether it's as a researcher from certain universities, whether it's my um, my status, you know, within a research team, my race, yes, my gender, those things too, but it's not just race and gender. If you notice in our paper, that's the last part. We start off thinking about, well, what is your, your field relationship to certain communities? When I have a Black mother tell me, and this has happened to me several times, that she doesn't want her child in special ed. And I was a, a, a CEC award-winning special ed teacher, right? And she didn't want her child in special ed because people like me um, put her and segregated her in schools, right? And that her special education experience was horrible. And she didn't automatically trust me that I had her child's best interest at heart, at heart. You bet your, you bet your good, I don't know, what's the expression? I don't speak English that well. You bet your hard-earned dollar that I needed to do that positioning work and go back to the drawing board and consider, well, what is my relationship? Yeah, I'm a Black woman. I'm a Black mom like her. But what is the fact that I represent a field that caused her harm? What is it that I have to do to gain her trust? And you have to do the work. I think it, it, it strengthens design. It strengthens the quality of information and data and understandings that you gain. It, um, especially for multiply marginalized communities who often are framed within special education as being irrationally untrusting. Oh, I just don't understand why parents don't trust us. Well, have you done the work to position yourself in a way to understand why they may not want to just open up to you just because you are a researcher? I think it just, it, it really does make it a better process. Yeah, and again, it doesn't have to be on a study. You're not going to write this up. Everything that we're discussing is so involved. It is not yeah. going to be all explicitly shared in your study. But if you're doing good research, and this is why our emphasis was on graduate students when we wrote this up, like training up doc students and emerging scholars, then this is the kind of work that you need to be considering. Yeah. yeah. Or maybe, I mean, I was thinking when I read your articles, maybe this is, I mean, you cannot write all this stuff in a research article because you cannot make it in seven, eight thousand words or even the ones who are generous with 10,000 words, right? But I mean, a lot of journals also gives you the possibility to add additional materials, right? That they are on uh, the side that, you know, sometimes people ask for databases to put there uh, and different materials that would not fit in an article, but they're important for the rigorosity of the study. So I wonder if that could be could be part of, of you know, what journals give the possibility, at least people to, to add a, as a, a additional material to, to have a, a reflection piece on this. But I, I want to not push you, but ask you a little question, farther, uh, farther question about where you were going with that, Mildred, and, and I, and I want to hear about this from you too, Subini. It's like, okay, I did the reflection. I'm going to go, let's see, I meet some participants, uh, and I did all that like work on myself to understand where I'm coming from, how it's going to influence. What do I do now? Like, how do you change the relationship with that person or the activity that you're going to engage with that person with that work that you have done previously? So I would say that for me, what has been the most important is surfacing those conversations. It's not a work that I do on my own. So many of you probably know that I work with disabled uh, youth of color, particularly incarcerated disabled kids. Um, and for me, this is such important work because every time I step into a youth carceral facility, so a lot of times I work in maximum security facilities, there are bars, there are uh, handcuffs, there are strip searches, all of these really 
really deep and um, harmful practices that are being done. And I walk in as a free person and I walk out as a free person every day um, when I work with these kids. And so I actually talk to them about that. What does it mean that, that I'm here to talk to you about this? How do you feel about this? So one is just surfacing the conversations about power. I have all the power in this situation. If I wanted to, I could call a guard if I feel threatened and somebody could tackle that kid and put them in, in segregation and they literally had, could have to be um, segregated for you know up to 72 hours by themselves with one bed, uh, one pillow and one sheet. So I have to really, first of all, think about my own, like interrogate. The, so there is some work to do ahead of time to do that interrogating about who I am, but then it's also a conversation between us. And so, the, and then the final thing I'll say is, the third thing that I think is, so it's the interrogating, the conversation between us, but then it's also the addressing it when there is conflict or tension, right? So I really pull from that concept from chat that tensions are um, an area for growth, but only if you actually surface them. So for example, I write about um, when I make mistakes with kids, when I say something that I think is funny or an offhand comment, and then I realize that it isn't so funny. So for example, I've written about this um, uh, a piece just came out where we talked about um, I was going to bring in food for the kid for the girls um, who are all in a maximum security facility, and I was going to bring in food, and I just said something silly like "It's just chicken tenders. Why are you so excited about this?" And one of the girls clapped back at me, and she said, "Because we're in jail." And ooh, I had to sit with that, and I went home the next day, and I thought I thought about it that night, and I went back in the next day, and I said that was a really uh, poor, poor joke. Like, I'm sorry, I joked about that. Cause you're right. Of course you would be excited about food from outside the prison. We know that um, prison food is terrible, right? Like it's, it's like famous for being how bad it is and how little of it there is and how it's used as a tool of, of punishment. So I had to go home. I had to read a little bit. I had to journal, I had to unpack it. And then I had to go back and I had to say it. I had to say, I am sorry. I made a mistake. So part of this is like, yes, do the interrogation. Yes, have the conversations. And then yes, be able to surface the tensions and work with them. And 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 as again, as researchers, we're so often taught that we're right all the time. But when we make a mistake, and even if it's a small one, because I know the girls were like, girl, that's not that serious. You don't need to apologize. And I said, yes, I do. That is my responsibility to you. And one of the girls started crying and said, nobody apologizes to us in here. So like, mm. you do have to think about I think in every case, how we do these multiple ways of engagement. And that's why we keep saying this is a process of inquiry. This is not some deep um, thing you do once and then it's over. Yeah. Thank you for, for those very vulnerable examples, um, Subini. I think that was great. I'm going to be honest with you, Federico. Sometimes I have walked away from projects because I realized I have no business sharing this. This does nothing add to the community I am talking about. Remember, again, I'm going to keep emphasizing positionality is something in inquiry that we all, we all can do. And it could be with people who have more power than some of the people who are doing the research. But in my case, I research and I engage in inquiry about multiply marginalized people. And there have been times where I, I've done the reflective work I've shared the information with colleagues and I realized, or with, with co-participants, um, with co-constructors of knowledge, not just colleagues, but those who are participating. And I realized some of this knowledge does not add in any way 
that is fruitful to to these these people's um, experiences, to the knowledge, to the literature, not all knowledge. And by the way, some of us do think that some people, some fields, some folks think all knowledge is worth worth um, sharing. But my ethics, because I am clear about what my ethics are, I have an ethical obligation that I make explicit in my scholarship to the communities I'm generating knowledge about. And if I if I find if there's a time where participants ask me to pull back, or if I see, well, this is sacred information. This is things that maybe should not. It's not. Um, it's not appropriate, does not in any way um, add to the conversation that is in, in any way helpful, then there's times where I pull out, I pull back. And again, this should not be a surprise to anyone. This is the kind of stuff that people throughout all fields, physicists, chemists, they do the same kinds of things where they realize, hey, maybe this is not appropriate. We should think about it. We should think um, think before we move forward. And the other thing I'm going to say about that, that is that there's been times where, in addition to walking away because participants indicated that, that it wasn't appropriate, there's been times where I've walked away because I knew it wasn't. And and the reactions of my team members, right? Because the incentive in, in the academy, right? We're talking to researchers, people listening to this are researchers, is to publish, 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 impact factor, age index, um, um, I don't know how many, how many, how many downloads. And you know what? I've gotten all of that. I'm very grateful that I can say that I've gotten the downloads, the, the impact factor journals. Shoot, I have tenure and I've done it in a way that it aligns with my ethics and is committed to the multiply marginalized communities that I'm generating knowledge with and about. And if mm-hmm. they don't feel comfortable with me sharing, then it's yeah. worth it for me to pull back. Yeah, I think what you're, what you're hitting there uh, is the question who benefits from the project, right? Is this project benefit because uh, it's going to help me to publish three articles out of this, even though the information I'm going to be providing has been, say, a million thousand times, but I'll make it bullish and I have some more numbers? Or is the project really going to benefit the community that I'm working with in a sense that would generate some knowledge where they can use or people who help them can use to uh, uh, improve their practice, right? Um, let me ask you one you more question. On the you said what I was trying to say better I, than I, think, I do. I think you're you're muted. I said, there you go. I, I said you said it. You summarized that better than what I was able to say it, Federico. Exactly. Some of this stuff is just reifying deficit thinking about communities and to an audience that doesn't understand the nuances. So if it's just going to do more of that, then why publish it? What for 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 a line on your CV? No, a line on my CV is not worth that. Right. And Mildred, the only thing I would add to that is this is not about methodology. This is not about quant good, qual bad, or qual good, mm-hmm. quant bad. This is about how we as researchers choose to engage our research. Uh, and that and this can, these questions can be answered of any methodology, any theoretical framing. So the, again, the, we are not saying everybody has to do work just like us. We are saying that everybody should consider their relationship to the field, to systems of oppression and to participants. Mm. Or And remember, participants can be represented by quantitative data. That's what quantitative data is often. It's counting people. So you still have participants in, the, in, those, in, that, in that work. So again, just a reminder that this is not about 
one methodology or a theoretical engagement or even epistemology being good or bad. Mm. Uh, yeah, I was about to follow up with that since we were focusing too much on qualitative research, and I know we have have a plethora, a wide range of quantitative people that have quantitative work in special education, and I wonder how they're thinking about this work, right? And 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 what is the work that needs to be done? I don't know when you design an intervention, right? And you need to go and implement and interact with people, but also when you design intervention, I'm sure there is some uh, a reflection that needs to be going on when we think about what are we going to be doing to people, right? Are you familiar with crit quant? Yeah. So there's this whole, and then there's also quant crit. There's both, both and yeah. there's both, there's both and, and it is not the same, but you should check out both, right? So both of them are asking both people who are, whether you're quick quant or quant crit, and there is a difference, check it out. They're asking quantitative methodologists and quantitative, those engaged who in, engage quantitative methods, they give guidance in terms of mm-hmm positioning yourself with all of this data, all of these numbers. So there's people who are thinking very thoughtfully about this. Yeah. All yeah, of quacking and quanting and it's just quanting so crazy. confusing. Can we just not come up with like better names of things? I mean, we're horrible about making names, right? We're, the quack, we're quack, quack, the quanking quank, you know, it's just, just sounds... We're, we're uh, academics. Just like a Donald Duck episode, you know, it's just... Um, all right, I'm going to finish with two questions that I'm trying to ask to all my interviewers, interviewees, um, and I'll give space for each of you to answer. The first one is, um, if you can give very briefly, maybe like three sentences or three tweets, however you want to think about it, three pieces of advice for researchers to center equity and justice in their research. I can see Mildred's uh, brain working, so I'm gonna I'm gonna jump in while while we let her think because you you know it's gonna be fire. So I'll just warm up the crowd and then and then we'll go. But I would say you know for me it's really um, learning how to read the work of the notions that dominate the field and recognize the way those notions reproduce historical inequities. Um, and that means that we understand that all work has biases. And instead of trying to ignore them, we engage methodological rigor so you can account for them. And again, that doesn't erase the biases, but it surfaces them. We all work under these power structures. The other two things I'd say is learn the history of eugenics and how it interacts with our field um, and how it inter- intersects with racism, ableism, and other oppressions. And the third thing is instead of subscribing to narrow epistemologies and methodologies, uh, learn rigorous ways to engage critical work. Understand how power is reproduced and how multiply marginalized community resist that reproduction. And I really want to emphasize that last part. Our job is never just to um, write down how people are dispossessed, right? That's part of the work, of course, of critical work, but it's also to recognize the brilliance in our communities and the way we, our communities and our students individually and communally resist oppression, intersecting mm-hmm. oppressions. So to me, that is like the, the power of our work is when we do both things. Uh, okay, so my three tweets are, the first one is, um, know what you know. And, and I tell that to folks all the time. There's people who think they know something but they don't really know it. So if you say that you were a special ed teacher in an urban community, 
okay, know what you know. What do you know about that community that you're that you're in? What do you know about special education? What do you know about who you are in terms of your um your embodied experiences with disabilities? Make it clear to yourself as a researcher. Know what you know. The second one is every choice has an invoice. And that's a Buster Rhymes quote, but whatever. It's also a Mildred Boveda quote now too. Every choice, as a researcher, every choice has a consequence. And maybe the consequence and the invoice, the cost is, it should not be, the cost should not be, the bill should not be primarily on the communities that we are researching and generating knowledge with or about. They should not be holding the, the major bill or invoice of your choices. Every choice has an invoice. Really think what that invoice is. Really think about the choices you're making as a researcher, who you're deciding to study with um, or, or generate knowledge about, and what the invoice of that, that choice is. And then the third thing I would say is, um, it's, I guess it's what I had to do for myself and is create your own ethical guidelines. IRB is great. But IRB is the minimum. It is the minimum. Like those standards, okay, and I'm glad they exist. That's the minimum. Really make sense of who you are, what you want to do, how you want to um, um, be in relationship, and what, what lines you are not willing to cross for a line on your CV. Make that very, very clear for yourself. Because the incentive structure of the academy is very elitist. And ironically, we are generating knowledge about some of the most vulnerable people in the world. There's a there's a conflict there. Okay, so you have to make sure that you create those kinds of like lines for yourself. And if you can publish about it, great. If you can't, at least you know you know for yourself what you won't cross. Those are my my tips. All right, I, I must say that that was a little longer than a tweet. I don't know if that's going to fly with Elon Musk. Uh, if that's going to go. But uh, we'll, we'll let you do. I'm a little more flexible than Elon. So here's my last question. I want you to dream a little bit. We're going to dream together. Um, what would you like to see in special education research five to 10 years from now or in the future? I think, you know, really what I would love to see from the field of special education and what I've always tried to do in my work are... Um, Decenter whiteness. Uh, one of the things that I think is really, really common, and I'm seeing this, and by the way, this goes all the way into public schools, all the way through, and, and I think it, a lot of it starts in teacher education, which is, um, and, and special education training as well, is um, that once a kid becomes diagnosed with a disability, um, we assume a universal experience, and that is usually rooted in whiteness. So um, really with, with the recognition that we have so many youth of color, disabled youth of color, what does that mean to decenter whiteness? And part of that is we decenter white, um, disabled white participants as the main framing, as the main participant, or as the main assumption. So even when we have kid, disabled kids of color in our studies, we actually don't address race at all. We talk about, um, you know, we talk about disability, but we don't talk about ableism. So decenter whiteness via an intersectional framing that is about intersecting oppressions. Um, learn the history and current uh, history of and current ways of resistance. Um, I'm going to keep coming back to that uh, for disabled people of color. And always consider the social context, context, the historical and cultural 
histories and the current conditions. So I just really want us to really like think about our work as not in a bubble of here's an intervention we tried and there's nothing else. Look at we've 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 held and we've created all these variables so we can technically knock all of them out, but we haven't actually talked about the intersecting oppressions or the institutional and societal ways in which kids are treated and that we're all functioning under. Yeah, thank you for that. Yeah, I was I was I really wanted to ask you these questions about dreaming, right? These questions about what do we want to happen to to the field in a few years. So thank you for that. Mildred, what are your dreams for the field? My my dream, well, first of all, like I had dreams for the field a couple of years ago and I'm seeing it come true. So I love this question. There's a lot of things that I wish was happening a couple of years ago. And now it's like far more prevalent, like having conversations with Federico and Subini. Like having like having a podcast like mine. You dream that you that's, dream that it became true. That's a dream. That's correct, Federico. That is right. So let I love this dreaming. I love this dreaming. And that's part of the equity work. Um, so thanks for asking the question. In five years, I would like to read articles, even from critical critical um, scholars, folks who have equity focus, where it is obvious that they have not just white people or people without disabilities or other academics in mind. I want to, in a couple of years, pick up an article and see that this is considering an audience. It is understanding that an audience, besides the academy, which is predominantly white and male and et cetera, et cetera, is engaging this. That's That would be exciting for me, especially in special education. So let's see. Let's see if it happens. All right. I'll, I'll interview in 10 years and five years and we'll, we'll, we'll see. We'll see uh, we meet these, these beautiful trips. Uh, well, again, thank you. Thank you much. So much, Subini. Thank you so much, Mildred. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. And if you haven't, uh, subscribe to the podcast, of course, like I say to everybody. And uh, we'll see you around sometime. All right. That was awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much for having us, Federico. This was a lovely talk. Thank you for listening to our third episode of Dive In. I hope that you learned as much as I did with Suvini Anama and Mildred Bovera about positioning ourselves in our research endeavors. This podcast was produced by Tasia Gonzalez and Haya Abdelatif and the Diversity Committee of the Division of Research of the Council for Exceptional Children. Please, please, please subscribe to our podcast and check our next episode on Nagos. See you next time.